From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For your safety and the safety of others, please wear a face mask or covering while in the airport. Air travel has changed for the flying public, which has shrunk during the pandemic. Today, a picture of DIA right now. The airlines, the shops, the big construction projects. Then, a Colorado pediatrician shares how the U.S.'s withdrawal from the WHO will affect his work globally. He's particularly concerned about leaving Latin America in the lurch. And later, Kent Theory, the enterprising former CEO of the Fortune 500 dialysis company, DaVita. Theory is trying to slay dragons, many created by COVID-19, like joblessness and equipment shortages. And a Western Slope country singer who helps nursing home residents fend off the blues. Do you think they yodel in heaven? Do you think? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Passenger traffic is rebounding at DIA, but airports generally aren't expected to see a full recovery until 2023, according to Goldman Sachs. We're going to talk about air travel in this first part of the program in the midst of a pandemic. First, with Denverite's Kevin Beatty, who just spent some time observing life at Denver International Airport. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Ryan. Traffic is nowhere near what it used to be at DIA, but more people are flying in general. Who are they? Uh, Importantly, it's who they're not. Business travel probably won't rebound as people jump on Skype rather than on planes. Um, And business travel is a huge part of revenue for airports. Someone I spoke to said it accounted for as much as 40% of flights in the before times. So uh, business travelers are also likely to spend more at airports, too. Okay, and that's who we are not seeing. That Mm. phrase, the before times, that really resonates with me, (laughs) Kevin. What stood out to you as you wandered around DIA? Uh, I saw plenty of people uh, wandering to their gates. Um, the real absence, I think, was were the stores and restaurants, and I was in the C concourse. So a lot are still closed, which I'm told is related to that big drop in customers. Um, DIA worked out a deal with concessionaires who lease those spaces to collect, collect rent based on earnings. Um, I saw a lot of people wearing masks. I hear that hasn't been too big a deal. And probably the biggest sign of the times is a vending machine for N95 masks. They're two, pa- two packs for 12 bucks. Um, I met a passenger on a layover. Cynthia Perry was flying back uh, to Oklahoma City from California. I went to see my grandchildren. How was that? I hadn't seen two of them in over 10 years. Wow. Yes. It's quite a moment to travel across the country to see some folks. How how has it been going? It was great. No problems at all, even with the traveling. I flew on Southwest. That's who I'm flying with, and the plane is not full, so... Feel fairly comfortable. Very comfortable. How's uh, how's flying several hours with not being able to take your mask off? It doesn't bother me. Yeah. No, it does. Of course, we heard uh, about some mixed compliance with mask rules on planes too. Yeah. You mentioned the concessionaires that there have been some changes to how their rent is collected based on earnings, given that those are much lower. But tell us more about what concessions look like at DIA right now. Sure. I mean, the restaurants were open, had people in them. There's a Coors branded bar in the Sea Concourse that was pretty hopping, but you know, people had to wait in line to go in. They were sitting at socially distanced tables. Um, but a lot are just shuttered, you know, with those like mall security gates drawn and the lights out. Yeah. Um, I spoke to one traveler who told me she couldn't get the lunch she wanted, but I think she was all right with that eventually. Um, but it's a tough business business environment. Um, you know, I talked to this guy, Joshua LeBlanc, uh, who's the regional director for Parodies, which is a concessionaire. Uh, he was touring a CNBC smart shop he oversees when I met him. Before, we used to do one budget for a year. Mm-hmm. This year, we've done seven. Seven? Because it just keeps adapting. Wow. So, so you know, we're... we're, we're 
we feel good with where we're at. We see light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. but we're not sure what August or September or October is going to look like. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty much just focused on what, what our operation is today. Kevin, I know parking is a huge source of revenue for the airport. What's happening there? Yeah, the main garage was really empty. Uh, It was pretty striking when I drove through there. Um, And that's one way the airport knows that business trips are down. Uh, I'm told parking can account for as much as half of an airport's revenue. Um, I don't know how much DIA leans on that, but it was definitely already losing money from parking um, since more people are Ubering up there. Major construction projects, of course, were underway before the pandemic. How are they affected by all this? Yeah, right. Um, There's the Great Hall renovation and there's a major gate expansion that are happening at the same time. Uh, The Great Hall project was already rebounding from some pretty big delays. You might remember the city recently cut ties with a developer over those. Um, But a DIA spokesperson told me both those projects were able to speed up um, since there were fewer travelers to avoid. Uh. Um, The gate expansion was supposed to take five years, and now they're saying it might only take two to complete. So it's a pretty big uh, shortening in that. And the big factor for that one is uh, fewer planes on the tarmac, which makes the work a little easier. Um, Worth noting, both of those were paid with bonds, so any revenue loss won't mess with that construction. But a lot of the gates with that expansion, those were committed, I think, to United, which is now braced for layoffs. It's true. Um, United signed a 10-year lease with DIA back in January, and uh, that includes a bunch of those gates. They're pretty much stuck with them as long as they're in business. But uh, folks at DIA are projecting confidence in a comeback before too long. And if they're right, they'll need those gates because DIA was way over customer capacity last year. Uh, It's still a big if because, like I said at the top, uh, people who used to travel for business might just keep Skyping after the pandemic becomes less of an emergency. There's more leg room when you Skype, too. Thanks so much for being (laughs) with us, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Visual journalist Kevin Beatty from Denverite, which is a part of CPR. And you can see his photos and read his reporting at the airport at denverite.com. Uncertainty reigns in air travel right now, says Jim Jim Simmons. He's a professor in the Department of Aviation and Aerospace Science at MSU Denver. And he joins us with the broader picture and to share what he tells students who are joining a field that went from boom to bust. And Jim, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Say more about the uncertainty facing airlines right now. What are their big questions? Well, there's a couple of different ones. First of all is what's going to happen when the $50 billion worth of government subsidies from grants and loans basically runs out at the end of September. Will there be a second bailout, in other words? I don't know. I haven't heard much about it. I think uh, the politics of it are uh, gradually speeding up. For a while, I understand that leaders in Congress were not Uh, working much on a new program, but that seems to be speeding up now. The big thing is that at the end of September, the airlines face massive layoffs. United has already announced that it's uh, talking about laying off 36,000 people. Delta is talking about laying off uh, 20,000 people. Delta already has had uh, over 17,000 early retirements Mm. and a bunch of people who are on voluntary furlough but they're going to face a financial crisis. They just announced their first quarter results yesterday, and they lost $5.8 billion in the first quarter of the year. And, of course, the agreement with the help from the federal government was that they retained employees uh, to a certain point. And then you have United saying, yeah, well, when that date arrives, we're going to lay off a bunch of people. Do you think that's United trying to convince the federal government to extend its program? Yes, I do. But um, when you look at the travel numbers, 
um, it seems very reasonable that that's the direction that they're pushing. Uh, as of Monday of this uh, week, domestic travel was down 71% in the United States. International travel was down 90% in the United States. And um, normally this time of year, there's about two and a half million passengers a day that travel. But um, last week, there were only 686,000 a day um, average. Now, that's way up from the low of only 95,000 a day. But still, uh, revenue for airlines is down. 34% of the domestic fleet is parked at the moment. Some airlines have reduced their aircraft fleets permanently. So uh, even as things start to rebound, there's going to be a smaller industry, at least for several years. You mentioned 90% being the figure that international travel is down. And as we heard Kevin say, that is bread and butter for a mainline carrier. I, I want to talk just a little bit about Southwest, which is also a big presence at DIA. I think they're keeping middle seats open. They've made that decision. Are they better positioned than other airlines? Uh, yes, they went into the pandemic better positioned because they had uh, a good deal of cash on hand given the size of the company they are. But they've also announced that they're going to be facing layoffs if traffic doesn't triple by the end of this year. Now, that's going to be pretty hard to do if they continue to keep the middle seat empty mm. because even with a full flight, they're basically only operating at two-thirds of capacity. I know that some airlines have already folded. Names we may not recognize that are um, kind of subcarriers. Yes, they're regional contract carriers for the major airlines. The two that have closed. One is Compass Airlines, which didn't have much of a presence in Denver. Oh. And the other was Trans States Airlines. Now, Trans States had already announced that they were closing because the contracts that they had with Delta and United were being reworked. But Trans States closed in April. So they closed early. Yeah, this has had a quickening effect in the airline industry on trends that were already underway. That also applies to the kinds of planes that are flying. My understanding is that this has been the death knell for the 747 and that giant two-story A380. There are a few A380s flying, mostly from um, Mideast carriers, but what you say is correct. Uh, United already had gotten rid of its 747s before this started, and they were the last United States carrier to have them. But basically, there's no world market for four-engine airplanes anymore. These and jumbo jets and these super jumbos. That's correct. And even some of the uh, twin-engine aircraft are being retired. Delta Airlines, for example, is retiring its Boeing 777s. Um, American Airlines is retiring its Boeing 757s and 767s as well. I do want to talk about the 737 MAX, which had been grounded before the pandemic for safe, safety reasons. It's a more fuel-efficient plane, which I have to think airlines are interested in right now. Will the pandemic keep the 737 MAX on the ground forever, do you think, or does it have a future? I think it has a future. Uh, as of the end of last year, Boeing had over 4,900 orders for that aircraft. Now, as of the first half of the year, 
Uh, there have been over 350 cancellations, but Boeing is working very hard trying to arrange financing for airlines that are having trouble um, looking down the road to come up with money to um, buy them. A lot of leasing companies are also working with Boeing to try to find ways to take delivery of those aircraft so that they can then turn around and lease them to airlines who don't have the money to buy them. I think in the long run, the MAX will be all right. There's a lot of question about whether passengers will continue to be wary of flying mm. on it. But I think in a longer time frame, uh, it's going to turn out to be an all right uh, thing for Boeing. Jim Simmons, professor in the Department of Aviation and Aerospace Science. I understand that you and your wife had a bunch of trips planned, including air travel. Are you going on any of them? Just curious what your own relationship is to this. Uh, no, we are not. We have um, had all of our trips, but one canceled. The next was, uh, is in next July, and we're holding on to that, but we're not sure we're going to go. Next July. Do you have concerns about flying right now? Personally, yes, I do, although the airlines have been working hard to increase their sanitization of the flights. They've been doing a lot of um, email blasts to their customers saying that they're doing more deep cleaning, that the air purification systems on airplanes all have HEPA filters, and the air is circulated rapidly, and it's very clean in airplanes. There haven't been clear documentation examples yet of people who have become infected by flying. Just briefly, I can imagine this being a demoralizing time to start out in aviation. What are you telling your students, just in a few words? That they need to take a long-term perspective on the industry. Anybody who's over about age 50 or 55 that's connected with aviation at all has been through times that have been tough. Now, this is the toughest time in the whole history of the industry. Wow. But there are positive signs. As you say, traffic is going slowly up, and the uh, prospect of better treatments for the COVID-19 and a vaccine possibly on the horizon will mean, I think, that people will continue to want to travel. Keep hope alive, in short. Thanks so much for being with us, Jim. My pleasure. Thank you. Jim Simmons, professor in the Department of Aviation and Aerospace Science at MSU Denver. Still to come, a globally connected pediatrician on the U.S.'s announcement it will withdraw from the World Health Organization. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give right now, your essential donation means CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And it means that CPR Classical and Indy 1023 can continue to fill your home with music. Preserve and protect all that you get from Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. We wondered if Colorado physicians working on global health might be affected by the U.S.'s decision to pull out of the World Health Organization. The answer is yes. And before we hear from one of those physicians, let's listen to the president who said the WHO ignored calls for reform, especially in light of its handling of the novel coronavirus outbreak. Because they have failed to make the requested and greatly needed reforms, we will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds 
to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. Well, Dr. Steve Berman, pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado, is deeply concerned. He works with the WHO through a regional arm called the Pan American Health Organization, better known as PAHO. Berman's fear that without U.S. support, vulnerable people in impoverished countries will die. Latin America, for instance, has emerged as an epicenter for COVID-19. Dr. Berman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to talk with you about WHO and the PAHO. Give us an example of some of the work the PAHO is doing as it relates to COVID-19 and where that work is occurring. Sure. One of the important uh, things that uh, PAHO does is it helps to manage a series of surveillance reference laboratories. And these laboratories are really critical for the diagnosis and surveillance of the coronavirus, as well as other emerging pathogens like yellow fever and influenza. The PAHO also is really critical in helping countries, especially the low-resource countries in the Americas, be able to respond to the coronavirus epidemic and also maintain the programs that are so critical for women and children. So in a way, these centers are sentinels. They help detect the prevalence of disease. And without them, uh, and let me not make that assumption, without U.S. support, what happens to those centers? Well, without U.S. support, the ability of those centers to function are severely compromised. And not only are they sentinel centers, but they're absolutely critical to having countries be able to manage the coronavirus outbreak. They're the main focus for identifying infections, generating data to see if there's community spread, diagnosing cases that are in hospitals. Just think what it would be like in the United States if we had absolutely no capacity to identify coronavirus infections. We did hear in the introduction the president talk about taking the money it was investing in the World Health Organization and reinvesting that elsewhere. Have you gotten any assurances that perhaps that funding will still be dedicated to these efforts? No, there's been no assurances. And also, PAHO and WHO have developed systems and programs, uh, systems to take care of women in childbirth, systems to reduce mortality of children before age five, vaccine systems. And it's not something you can just turn on and off. Uh, You know, there are 5.3 million children who die each year, and those are excessive deaths, children that don't have to die before their fifth birthday. But they die because of a lack of preventive care, vaccines, uh, basic medical care. And there was a study in The Lancet that suggests that an additional 1.2 million children will die in the next six months if these programs are compromised. And an additional 144 women now die giving childbirth 
And if these programs are compromised, there'll be 56,000 additional deaths in six months. We're really at a crisis stage. And you believe that the infrastructure the WHO had in place is worth being committed to. I want to play this from Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's director general of the WHO. He was emotional when the U.S. announced its withdrawal. My friends, make no mistake. The greatest threat we face now is not the virus itself. Rather, it's the lack of leadership and solidarity at the global and national levels, which and every individual should reflect. This is a tragedy that actually is forcing us to miss many of our friends, losing many lives. And we cannot defeat this pandemic as a divided world. Meanwhile, the president has said he's withdrawing funding from the WHO because it failed to investigate the pandemic in China when the illness first happened. What's what's your response to that? My response is that this is a scapegoat. Uh, it was China that caused the problem. Then it was WHO. Then it's the governors. Uh, but the reality is that There are many countries with the same information that we had that are doing very well. So to place the blame on the World Health Organization and PAHO is just totally inappropriate. When this pandemic started, there were many things about this virus that we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And it took time to understand what was the transmissibility. Could asymptomatic people spread the virus? Does the virus spread just by large droplets or small droplets? This wasn't really what I call mistakes. This was trying to make decisions on very limited, insufficient information. And fortunately, as the science improved and we learned more about the coronavirus, then the public health measures and also the treatment changed. And that's very appropriate. So to blame the WHO, for what is our lack of a comprehensive strategy, uh, the lack of leadership at the federal level, the lack of preparedness. You know, Benjamin Franklin said, failing to prepare is planning to fail. And that's what the United States has done. We failed to prepare. And as a result, we are failing miserably. I want to thank you for your perspective, Dr. Berman. Thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Steve Berman, director of Denver's Center for Global Health. He also collaborates with the World Health Organization. The Trump administration announced that it is withdrawing from that global group. The pandemic hit not long after Kent Theory retired as CEO of DeVita Incorporated, a kidney care company. The Fortune 500 company is based in Denver. And not surprisingly, Theory assessed the situation through his lens as a former leader of a healthcare company. And he began to see in the pandemic a lot of gaps. 
gaps between big companies that got economic assistance and small businesses that didn't, gaps between the power of the virus and the nation's response to it, and gaps between workers who kept their jobs and those who must find new lines of work. These are all gaps that Kent Theory wants to try to help close. So much for an easy, breezy retirement. Kent, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you very much, Ryan. Let's start with a new project called the Energize Colorado Gap Fund. This uses federal and private money to help struggling small businesses. Uh, Give us an idea of a business you're trying to help with this. Well, one example would be someone who needs to reopen their bakery. And yet reopening the bakery after you exhausted your funds trying to keep it open in the first place and perhaps keeping a couple people employed, you used all your all your spare resources when this whole thing started, and you don't have more money sitting in the bank to reestablish an inventory and to clean things up and to put in some of the, the infection control equipment and standards and the rest. And so you're just stuck. You're stuck, but maybe a $10,000 loan, a $15,000 loan, could make all the difference in reopening your business. That's what we're here to provide, loans and grants for businesses like that to help them come back to life. These are presumably businesses that did not get PPPs, those protective loans? We are going to give priority to those who did not get earlier loans, but we're not going to exclude them because in many cases that was a wonderful uh, loan or grant uh, that lasted for a short time. But unfortunately, as we all know, the pandemic continues. And so there could be a lot of very uh, wonderful businesses and citizens who need a second booster shot to make it through to the other side. So we will give preference to those who did not, but we will not exclude deserving citizens and businesses that need a little more. As I mentioned, this Energize Colorado Gap Fund is a mix of federal and private money. What, how big is the pot there? Well, it's growing. It's really a spectacular example of combining the public sector, the private sector, and philanthropy. For example, we already have from the state and federal government $25 million of grant commitments. We've already raised multiple millions of dollars on the loan side. And when I talk about loans here, we're talking about loans that are at 1% interest, Mm. almost interest-free that money's being raised in the private sector. Uh, the government money came in quickly, and we're just out there doing fundraising on the private and philanthropic side. So it really is a, one of those moments where everybody is chipping in on a partnership basis. You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned earlier infection control. You know, I think as consumers, we just assume that stores, you know, businesses will transform with, you know, plexiglass dividers and generous amounts of hand sanitizer. But these are things that businesses have to pay for. The transition can be expensive. So that's part of the reality here. I want to mention that this gap fund comes out of a larger program called Energize Colorado which has all sorts of support for businesses, mentoring, reopening guidance. There's a marketplace for PPE and disinfectant, even mental health resources. What is the mental health toll right now on these business owners? Well, mental health is one of the hidden costs and tragedies 
of this entire event and and why the balance between reopening and and closing is such a tortuous one from a policy point of view. Hmm. The kind of stress that falls upon a person who has to terminate their employees, who has to worry about putting food on their table, who has to worry about the sustainability of their broader community, takes a terrible toll on good human beings. And we need to make sure that there is access to the kind of support services that can make a huge difference for people who are facing a legitimate crisis in their life. And with a little bit of help, they can make it through. And uh, that's possible with his Energized Colorado program. Uh, let's stick with the idea I just brought up of PPE. I imagine you have perspective on this as the former CEO of a major healthcare company. Why has it been so difficult to get a hold of this stuff? Oh, boy. There's quite a story here. Early on in the sheltering, I went off to D.C. for a week uh, and was embedded within FEMA, spending long, long, long hours every day and night uh, working in a crowded, crowded, uh, non-hygienic FEMA building uh, with the people who were in the early days of this trying to figure out how we could get the right PPE from China and Vietnam and how we could get the right swabs from Italy and and all of the rest. And, And it was quite intense and somewhat chaotic as all the different government agencies were struggling to figure out how to move quickly and how to move together. And the problem is, at at a macro level, uh, that over time, these industries developed very specific, very efficient, very narrow supply lines, because that was the lowest cost way to do it. And so you found yourself in a situation where 60% of all the nose swabs in the world, the pharyngeal swabs, were made in one factory in Milan, Italy, of all places. Italy, of course, is one of the hard-hit countries. Right. So part of what we had was very few supply chain alternatives because of 20 years of specialization and focus, which made perfect sense and saved consumers a lot of money up until the point that the supply chain got interrupted, either by increases in demand, too many sick workers, or host countries not wanting to, uh, to release those materials because they wanted them for this themselves. So all of those things factored in together led to what you pointed out. Fascinating. Now, is there a risk that that will apply as well to the manufacture of a therapeutic or a vaccine when one becomes available? Un- unfortunately, this is creating new geopolitical stresses, and we're already seeing this play out where the United States government uh, reserved a huge block of a, of a promising therapeutic. There are other countries contemplating the same. And so all of, this, all of these industries were, were born and raised under the premise that there would be smooth trade between lots of different countries. Once you take that premise away, there could be all sorts of dislocations. And nobody can win because there's no country that's totally self-sufficient. We need to establish a premise of leaning in towards cooperation because there's nobody that can stand on their own like an island. Let's focus for a moment on employees. I'll say that Colorado's business and political leaders have talked for years about the need to train people and educate them differently for the jobs of the future. And of course, now we have a situation where a lot of people have lost their jobs because of the pandemic. 
How do you help those folks short term, you know, beyond unemployment benefits and long term? Well, let me tackle the, the long term first, because one other project that I'm incredibly excited about is I'm chairing a new college, a new type of college called Advance EDU. Very exciting because it's dramatically lower cost than typical college. It offers significantly more extensive support services to help you get through school, not just start it. And it's very job competency-based. And the way you do this is by having a strong accredited online degree supplemented by having counselors who can work one-on-one with students to deal with time management, stress management, course selection, etc., and all of it is tightly linked to job competency, not just generalized learning, and so that when you graduate, after having spent a fraction of what you would at most normal colleges, you are not only not in debt, you've got job-relevant schools and an internship or two under your belt, and so you can enter into an economically mobile world. And you think that that immediate job readiness, the lack of debt, uh, those are critical to kind of hitting the ground running. And short term, uh, I mean, you know, a re-education does not happen overnight. Right. Short term, I think it's so important for companies to invest in the upskilling of their people. Uh, The same kind of programs that I just articulated that Advanced CDU provides there, there are entities available to do that for existing workforces. So you can have someone who's 36, who's 38, who's 40. You can have them continue to work, uh, but you also start giving them access to online programs. There's a, there's a Colorado-based company called Guild, for example, that does this for Walmart and others, helping tens of thousands of existing workers Go back and add to their skill base. Go back and get the degree they never got before. All of it integrated into their working life. All of it integrated into their working benefits. I think I almost think of this as needing to become the new, the new health care. That if you think about 40 years ago, when employers started offering health care insurance to people, well, you know that didn't exist before then. It was a new thought, and now it's it's quite common, and that's good for everybody. This perhaps should be the next wave of healthcare benefit, only it's worker retraining and upskilling benefit. Even as they are on the payroll, just briefly, I want to say, Kent Theory, that DeVita is not without controversy, the company that you used to lead. Uh, in 2014, it settled with the Justice Department for more than $350 million in a case that alleged DeVita was paying kickbacks for referrals. Uh, the company didn't admit liability. A few years later, a big Medicare reimbursement case. There was a jury that awarded families hundreds of millions in wrongful death cases. Should should we trust you? <laughs> the, well, I'll I'll let you reserve judgment on that till you've had more exposure. But I I feel confident in in what you'll conclude in the end. Let me uh, let me tackle the last one because it's sort of representative. Uh, boy, in 20 years we had that one uh, that one. Uh, verdict on the three patients that were hurt. And, and boy, that was hard for us because we fervently believe our doctors did the right thing. Uh, and, and the judge uh, apparently felt the same because the public uh, amount that got talked about up front was then reduced by 94% 
with a judge-supported settlement because the odds that we would have overturned the entire verdict on appeal were so strong. So that's just one example of how kind of what you heard about and what you read about would lead to one impression, but the way things ended up would lead you to exactly the opposite conclusion. That is Kent Theory, retired CEO of DeVita Kidney Care, a Fortune 500 company based in Colorado. He chairs the Energize Colorado Gap Fund. And we'll be right back with a country singer who makes life in isolation less isolating. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's photojournalists have received awards for the work they do every day, giving visual context for vital stories. Hart Van Denberg from CPR News. In some ways, you have the luxury to think about how to cover a story in a thoughtful way. And Kevin Beatty from Denverite. My job is to make art for news, and it's awesome. <laughs> Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. It seems odd to say that I have a favorite pandemic interview, but I do, and we're going to play it again because pickin' Peggy Malone of Fruta is delightful. She had to change her approach to performing when nursing homes went into lockdown. Normally, she would visit the residents to cheer them up. Not to be deterred, she found the perfect pitch by becoming a bathroom balladeer. Happy birthday, Pam! Your Uncle John and your Aunt Kim in Canada said it's your birthday and that you're a very young grandma. And I saw your picture and you are. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Pam. Happy birthday to you and many more. Hey, I'm going to do a little bit of a cowboy sweetheart just for you, okay? I wanna be a cowboy sweetheart. I wanna learn to rope and ride. This is from a Facebook video she made at home to ensure her audiences can still hear her while they're locked down in their rooms. The 76-year-old also does live performances from her powder room via video chat. And Peggy Malone, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's get one obvious question out of the way. Uh, why your bathroom? Very good acoustics, and that way I don't get to hear my husband's TV blasting in the other room. (laughs) I see. Is there a lot of tile? I know that's what makes my shower sound really good when I sing. Actually, uh, no tile, just plastic floor and, you know, one of those insert-type showers. I understand you approach this like you would a live performance. You get all gussied up, is that right? Matter of fact, I got dressed just to be in the mood today. You bet. Got my hat on, my scarf, and... My vest, yep, it it makes me feel more in contact with my buddies. Is that a cowboy hat? Oh, yes. A cowboy hat. And what about boots? Well, I usually have them on, but I don't because they'd make sounds if I was walking around like I do. (laughs) And describe (laughs) uh, a shirt you might wear for a bathroom performance. A Western. Oh, Oh, definitely Western, yeah. And try to be colorful because the residents like a lot of color. And a scarf around my neck that kind of goes with everything else, you know. (laughs) Are you in the bathroom now, Peggy? Yes, don't get personal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Why did you feel it was important to continue to entertain nursing home residents during this kind of shutdown? Oh, because I love them dearly and and it's very hard on them. It's always been a bright spot in my day 
and in their day when we see each other. And I just want to make sure they know that they're still thought of and loved. And music lightens the heart. It really does. At a time, I think, when hearts are heavy, huh? Yes, exactly. There's one little lady that her daughter always comes in to see her every day, does her hair and her nails, and her own daughter can't even come to see her. So she was pretty special when we did a a live Zoom show for her just the other day, which we plan to do again. Oh, I see. So you're doing videos that are on your Facebook page, but you're also doing live Zoom connections like so many of us. Exactly. The ones that can handle the Zoom. I'm doing that also. <laughs> and it, it's something new. I, I mean, uh, I'm learning some new stuff here, and it's pretty darn fun. That is the technology. You're learning the technology. I am. Had you heard of Zoom yourself? I had vaguely heard of it, but it's now a much more central part of my life. Wow. Well, it's new to me, and if you could see the faces of the people I can actually connect live with, it is just, it's just a super way to connect, and the smiles, and she apologized, this one little lady apologized for her hair, imagine that, I said, don't worry about it, I said, let's just have fun, you know? Now, when you're recording for Facebook, right, which doesn't have Mm -hmm. the immediate connection of the Zoom. Yes. When it's just you and that bathroom mirror, I guess, how hard is it without the human contact? It's not hard. It's not hard because um, I know who's going to be looking at it. I pretend they're there. (laughs) Music just comes out. Just comes out. (laughs) It just comes out. What are some of the songs you've been singing in recent days? For the uh, nursing homes, yeah, they love the old western songs, and they even like "Back in the Saddle" again because it reminds them of when they were kids, Aww. and they used to watch Gene Autry on TV and Roy Rogers. And they're not that much older than me anymore, <laughs> so they they know all the songs I know, and they love old Hank Williams. Oh, they love Hank and Johnny Cash and Patsy Cline. Uh, yeah, it tugs at their heartstrings. Give me a few bars of "Back in the Saddle" again, would you? Oh, 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 wow. You, I gotta get, can I get my guitar? Well, sure. Okay, hold on. All right, folks, you're, you're listening to Peggy Malone of Fruta, live from her bathroom, getting her guitar. A quickie. Yeah, the sound isn't great over the phone. I imagine the Zoom and the Facebook Live is much clearer, but I appreciate that. We got to hear a few bars there. You are known for sing-alongs. Do you think people sing along to the recordings they're receiving? I really do. I do, especially they love um, In the Garden. They all know that song, but that's a that's a kind of a holy song, so I won't put that on here right now for you. But um, that Why not? One, we'll just sing a few know. bars. You don't Not with the guitar. Yeah, just right not into the, the phone. Guitar? Yeah, just, how does okay. that go? I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses And the voice I hear Fallen on my ear The Son of God discloses And He walks with me And He talks with me and he tells me I am his own. 
and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Oh. It's nice in a way to think about uh, God's company right now. So many of us are isolated, you know. That's right. That's right. Mm. You... And they always like the, the chorus on that. That's the part they all sing along, you know. And he walks with me. Sometimes I, I make a little joke. Is it okay to tell you the joke I tell them sometimes? It, it kind of makes them laugh. Definitely. Um, a little boy was in, in church, and he says, I know the name of God. And they said, you do? Yes. His name is Andy. And, I, and they said, how do you know his name is Andy? Andy walks with me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't read this. Andy. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Andy. His name is Andy. I want to note that you are 76 yourself. So this physical distancing thing is also important for your own health. Uh, yes. You've been performing, though, in front of live audiences for more than half a century. How did you get your start as a pick and Peggy? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll tell you, my, my cowboy poet friend who is since long gone now, Ray Lashley, he named me PPP, Pretty Pick and Peggy. So that's where it came from. <laughs> and cowboy poetry is something else you're involved in. It's it's the sort of... Uh... Yes, with the museum. Yes. Now, I assume you're talking about the Museum of Western Colorado. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. I understand you come from a, quite a musical family. Yes. Actually, my own daughter just got off Broadway as Molly Brown, oh, wow. as Malone. And going back a few years... The Glenn Miller Band, my second cousin, Jerry Gray, wrote String of Pearls and Pennsylvania 65000. Wow. So music is in the blood. Pennsylvania 65000! Your mom was musical too? Oh, yeah. She just sang around the house and just was a great, great mother, great influence. And uh, you would have loved her. I used to get her up up on my jobs in Denver when I worked in the lounges, and she would bring the house down because she'd sing half in Italian and half in English. <laughs> oh, wow. You performed at Denver's version of the Grand Ole Opry. It was called the Rocky Mountain Jamboree. Your nickname on that show was the little girl with the big voice. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's where I really got my start, even though I, I did sing down in Texas one time. But uh, my true start was at the Rocky Mountain Jamboree, and it gave me good singing legs under me. I got to oh, sing along with Tom T. Hall and all these big stars that would come through. So it was great. How do you feel about that line, the little girl with the big voice? I don't know if that would fly today. <laughs> People still say that, but I always say, I'm glad you said it was the voice that's big. Okay. <laughs> That's you, a joke. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. They introduce me like that, you know, sometimes, and I'll whack myself someplace and say, well, glad you said it was my voice. <laughs> uh-huh. You performed in the 70s and 80s at Denver hotels and nightclubs during the stock show. Now, oh, yes. along with your many nursing home gigs, you're a regular, as we said, on the cowboy poetry circuit. And so I want to know what the secret is to your energy. I mean, especially in trying times like this. Well, music really does help the soul and the mind. And that's what keeps me going. 
And my husband has always, always encouraged me to get out there and sing my lungs out, which I do. Hmm. You call your liveliest tunes chair dancing music because, you know, they, they get people moving in their seats. Maybe sing us out with a bit of one of your chair dancing songs. I'd love something with a yodel in it. I hear you have a mean yodel, Peggy Malone. Ooh, can I play the guitar in this one, do you think? Well, it's just so hard. It's it's almost inaudible oh, at that point. It, it's hard. Okay, yeah. you know what? I will, I will sing the song that I wrote called... Do you think they yodel in heaven? And it is, it's a fun song because I got to thinking about old Roy Rogers and Gene Autry sitting around a campfire, and I wonder if they're yodeling up there. So here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Do you think they yodel in heaven? Do you think they yodel on high? Hey, do you think they yodel in heaven? Well, up in the sweet by and by. I can just see old St. Peter standing with his harp in his hand. But I ain't going through them pearly gates if I don't have a good western band. It goes on and on and on. <laughs> Peggy Millon, this has been a delight. And thanks for joining us from your bathroom in Fruta. <laughs> Thank you. Matter of fact, I think I will record a couple of songs right now for my nursing home bunch and put it on Facebook. Well, you're all warmed up. It sounds like a good idea to me. I'm warmed up. <laughs> when you're hot, you're hot. <laughs> Thanks, Peggy. When you're not, you're not. Take good care and stay healthy. Thank you. I hope I didn't drive you crazy too much. Pickin' Peggy Malone joined us from her bathroom in Fruta, Colorado, where she's been performing remotely for residents in nursing homes on lockdown. We spoke in March. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.